Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Well, uh, I have been in many of your homes, and thus I've been in many of your bathrooms, (laughs) and thus I know that you are readers. (laughs) In 35 years of preaching, that has to be the worst first line. I'm just saying that's one of the best one of the best bathroom books I have ever read is Stephen Pyle's book of heroic failures. And uh, 235 stories of failure from around the world. It has all kinds of numbers in there, like uh, 162. That's the number of patents that uh, Arthur Kiedrich uh, purchased in uh, Britain. None of them a commercial success, but you have to remark on his creativity. He had a remote-controlled golf ball. And he uh, designed a layout of a car where you could drive from the back seat. There's a number 959. That's the number of times that one person failed their driver's test. (laughs) Then there's the 50-something number, and uh, that was from a rugby club of 50-something-year-old men who, through a mistranslation, ended up playing rugby against the national team from Romania (laughs) on live television. And then there's this one. There's a woman, an elderly woman in uh, the heart of London whose cat got stuck in a tree. And she called a uh, firehouse in London. They came out with impressive speed and with skill, got the cat down. The lady was so thankful, she invited them into their house for tea. They had tea. They uh, went back out to the truck, waved goodbye, and backed over the cat. Failures hurts. Failures bring pain. Failures leave scars. Especially those failures that impact other people, and especially those failures if we're a follower of Jesus, where we sense might impact our relationship with God. In fact, sometimes in those kinds of seasons, our real question is not only where is God when I fail, but even more, where do I want him to be? And it feels like we'd want him to be 10 million miles away. And so the question this morning, as we continue this series, Gentle and Lowly, is this, who is God when we fail? We're in chapters 4 and 5. If you're just joining us this morning or haven't been here in the last few weeks, we're just doing a short series on a great book called Gentle and Lowly. You can still buy copies of it as you leave out in our bookstore. It's a book that our elders have read and prayed over you. It's a book that our staff has read and prayed over you. And now it's a book our small groups and many of us are doing because it's just a a life-giving examination of the heart of Jesus. And it's from these words, these words that every week we are calling into us, whatever reason you came this morning, Jesus wants you to hear these words. Come, 
unto me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is kind, and my burden is easy. And so, today, we want to ask the question, who is God when we fail? We're in chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to be looking quickly at two words that describe who God is when we fail. And then, the bulk of the, the rest of our time is going to be a story about an epic fail in the New Testament. Here's the idea from Dane Ortland. This is from chapter 4 of his book. Even though Christ is now in heaven, he is just as open and tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he ever was on earth. His embrace of sinners and sufferers. So the idea of embrace in our suffering, we look at these verses from Hebrews chapter 4 that Dane Ortland bases his chapter 4 upon. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not, even though he's in heaven, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin, or more accurately, he did not have a sin nature let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So that's God in our suffering. He empathizes. And then the next text is in Hebrews 5. Every high priest, so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is comparing Jesus now to the high priest in the First Testament and making the, the case that Jesus is the great high priest. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So who is God when we sin? He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Who is God when we fail? First, he is a God who pursues us to empathize with us. Now that word empathy in the original language is a compound word. It has the prefix with and the main word paseo is the word to feel or it usually in an in a uh, trial context to suffer. So it's someone who co-feels or co-suffers with us. And Dane Ortland points out in the book that perhaps the closest we can get to this word in our human experience is the way a parent feels for a child, right? Parents, is it true or not that you are only as happy as your least happy child? There is just an amazing empathy in the heart that your parents had for you, that you as parents have for your children. There's like nothing close to that. And yet, Jesus' empathy for us goes even deeper. Why? Because it's not just a parent-child feeling, 
but Jesus himself actually had every experience apart from sin that we will experience as a human being. Dane Ortland has a little bit of fun with this. He talks about it's like a doctor who, uh, in order to relieve pain, writes prescriptions. But this goes deeper because it's like a doctor who writes prescriptions to relieve pain who has the same disease. He says it's even deeper because um, Jesus was a sinless man, Ortland says, but he wasn't a sinless superman. That means, Ortland says, Jesus had bed hair. He had pimples at 13. I would go a little deeper because my two sons' favorite bathroom book going, growing up was John's bathroom book. And in there, we learned that at any given time in your head, you have a pint of snot in there. You have grams of earwax in your ear canals, and you sweat gallons of sweat through your feet, and we wonder why they smell. I'm suggesting to you that Jesus had smelly feet, dirty ears, body odor, and everything else even worse. Jesus was fully human and thus able to empathize with every human experience that we struggle with. You know, uh, as I reflect over the last however many years here, most recently, the best illustration I've told was an illustration a couple years ago I shared at a Christmas Eve service. And the only reason I say that is because your kids would come up for months after and say to me what you'll hear in this story. It lingered. It's a story by Matt Proctor, who at the time had uh, two sons. Carl was five years old. Conrad was three years old. And they were in that season of life where many of our kids have been, where they like to dress like their parents. Or more accurately, they like their parents to dress like them. So Carl and Conrad had this outfit they liked to wear, blue jeans and a navy blue shirt. And every so often, they would beg their dad to wear a blue t-shirt and blue jeans. And they had this ritual that they would all in their same dress get in the living room, and the boys would go, same, 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 same. Then when they would play living room football, which every three-year-old should have the opportunity to do with their dad, Conrad would make his dad get down on his knees to play living room football. Now, in theology, we know that as the holy other becoming flesh. But he would get down on his knees, and before they would start the game, Conrad would put his hand on his dad's shoulder, eye level, and say, same, same. Then one time, Carl had a bike spill out in the street, scraped his knee up. And a day later, his dad scraped his shin up, redoing the deck. And Carl came up and through the tears said to his dad, same, same. God, who is wholly other, in Jesus came down to be eye level so that every experience we have in life apart from sin, Jesus can accurately say to us, same, same. Thus, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the high priest who can empathize with us. So it goes like this. The priest always talking to the Father about us. Many of you here this morning, do you have financial stress? Jesus says to you, you remind me of that time when I lived here among you and I was a homeless person totally dependent on others to, to live. 
Some of you here this morning, you're like lonely, maybe even sitting by yourself here, maybe like it's so hard, but sometimes the loneliest place in the world for a single person is at church. And you're feeling lonely and Jesus is going to talk to the Father about you right now and what he's going to say to you is, you remind me of the Gethsemane Garden when my best friends bailed on me. And some of you here this morning, I feel like under huge temptation, there's this addictive sin, there's whatever it is that keeps pulling you and pulling you. And Jesus is talking to the Father and interceding for you this morning. And he's saying to you, you remind me of when I was in the wilderness and the devil himself came after me hard. And some of you here this morning, let's just face it, you're having family issues. There's no harder issues in life sometimes than getting along with your own family. And Jesus is talking to the Father right now about all that situation for you. And he's saying to you, you remind me of my family. They thought I was nuts. Some of you here this morning have a diagnosis on your health that you know you don't have or won't have much more time here. And Jesus is praying to the Father for you this morning. And he's saying to you, you remind me of Golgotha when I face down my own death. He is able to empathize with our weaknesses. Who is God when we sin? When we suffer, he's the one pursuing us with empathy. Who is God when we sin? Back to Hebrews 5, 2. He's the one who deals gently with us. And look at how it's described here. Those who are ignorant and going astray. And we read that and said, ignorant and going astray. Like, what, what kind of sin is being talked about there? Well, it's actually a lift from the First Testament. The Jewish law talked about all kinds of sin. And they would put them really in two categories. Like, ignorant, which means like unintentional. Going astray means intentional. There was two, kinds, two ways to sin. There's only two ways to sin. Either you willfully do it or you unwillfully do it. Either you accidentally sin. It's like, oh. Or you deliberately do it. And what the writer's point here is that no matter how you do it, the issue is not the severity of your sin. The issue is whether you'll bring all your sin to the one who can deal with it. All sin needs repentance. And if we bring it, notice the word gently. Jesus responds gently to all of our sin, no matter what the sin is, all of it, gently. The word gently is also a compound word in the original language. It's the prefix which means to hold back or restrain, and it's the same root as empathy, patheo. So in this context, the idea is that Jesus holds back the negative, harsh, reactionary emotions that we tend to have when someone sins against us or, you know, fails, we tend to, like, bring the hammer down. Jesus, when we sin, does not throw his hands off and say, oh, I'm God, how could you do that? Uh Uh-uh. Gently, controlled, soothing. When we sin, he comes to us directly with gentleness. That's who God is when we sin. He empathizes and he's gentle. Now I want to go to the story 
especially of how Jesus deals gently with us when we sin. And I want to talk about an epic sin in the New Testament. We'll spend the rest of our time here. There's much to see. It's a story about Peter. And if you go to the Gospel of John, which we will in a few moments, the very last chapter, chapter 21, the first question you might have in John 21 is, why is that chapter even there? If you read the Gospel of John, he kind of finishes the book in chapter 20, and then it seems like, oh, he says, I need to add on one more thing, and he writes another chapter and finishes again. And this whole other chapter, John 21, the last chapter, is all about Peter. And you're wondering, why is John writing and adding all these stories post-resurrection about Peter? I mean, it's a fair question. Peter, if anyone was ignorant and obnoxious and going astray all the time, it was Peter. Right? Peter in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his 12, who do people say that I am? And they throw out answers. And Peter actually gets for once, he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Right, and on that statement, Peter, I will build my church. And in fact, he changes Peter's name from Simon to Peter. Peter, Petros, is the Greek word for rock. So from now on, I'm going to, Jesus was fond of nicknames, by the way. I'm going to call you Rocky from now on. You got that right. But Peter, that's not enough. He actually, the text goes on to say, well, Jesus goes on and says, but to to do this and to build my church, I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to the Roman and Jewish authorities. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to die on a cross because we win the world through weakness and a cross. And I will rise again. Well, Peter, the text says he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Rocky. And that's, you might remember, if you've heard that story before, that's when Jesus says to Peter, remember? Get behind me, Satan. Talk about a rebuke. That's Peter. Chapter 17 of Matthew, very next chapter, transfiguration. The glory of Christ like that he had before he became a baby is like, exploded and Peter, James, and John get to see it and Peter can't leave a moment alone. So he says, wow, it's so good we're here. Why don't we build three tabernacles like we can set up a tourist site and the pilgrims can come and mark this moment. That's Peter. Goes to the Last Supper just before they sit down for Passover. Remember Jesus takes off his outer garments wraps a towel around his waist and begins to wash the disciples' feet like this last sermon that Jesus preaches, not with words. He's saying, this is what my disciples do. And when he gets to Peter, do you remember what Peter does? You will never wash my feet. And he like pulls his chair away from the table of humility and says, that's not the road I'm going to go. And then... In the garden, when Judas and the band come to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, chops off a high priest servant's ear, as if the kingdom of God will come by violence. Peter gets it wrong, and wrong, and wrong, and wrong. But we're not even to the epic one. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, all of you will fall away. Whoa. 
Peter says, not me. I will never fall away. Even if it costs my life, I will not leave. And we all, well, we all know what happens next. It's in Mark 14. I just want us to sit in this for a moment. While all this was going on, this is Jesus' trial. Peter was down in the courtyard. One of the chief priest servant girls came in and seeing Peter warming himself there, looked hard at him and said, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. He denied it. I don't know what you're talking about. He went out on the porch. A rooster crowed. The girl spotted him and began telling the people standing around, he's one of them. He denied it again, number two. After a little while, the bystanders brought it up again. You've got to be one of them. You've got Galilean written all over you. Now Peter got really nervous and swore. I never laid eyes on this man you're talking about. Just then the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He collapsed in tears. Can you say, epic fail? Okay, deep breath, everyone. A little interlude. Really heavy in the room. Let's go to resurrection morning for a moment. Jesus' body's not at the tomb. The women are there. Just a free piece of information. If this were a legend or a myth, women would never have been first at the tomb and never entrusted with the message first because women weren't even allowed to be legal witnesses in the court of law. That was free. The women are there. There's an angel by the tomb. The angel says to the women, you're looking for Jesus, he's not here. But he said to tell you to go into Galilee there you will find me, just as I said. Go and tell, here it is, the, ear, both ears. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now, why would the angel single out Peter? Why wouldn't he say, just go tell all the disciples that. I'll meet you in Galilee. There you'll find me, just as I said. Why the disciples and Peter? I can tell you this. If the angel didn't say and Peter, my suspicion is Peter would be thinking this way. Well, I heard about all this, but after what I've done, I don't think Jesus would want me there. What Peter's feeling is shame. Best recent definition on shame I've read in a long while comes from Brene Brown, Daring Greatly. This is what Peter was feeling. Shame is the intensity, intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is the fear of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished makes us unworthy of connection. I'm not worthy or good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. And to this feeling of shame in Peter, Jesus is already at work saying, tell the disciples and Peter. 
All right? Back to the story. Jesus sets up this and Peter encounter. They're on a John 21. They're, they go back to Galilee, and, you know, they had no idea how their resurrection is going to change their lives or change the world. So they think, well, we got to put food on the table. Let's do what we know how to do. We're going to fish. Seven disciples in a boat. They fish all night, catch nothing. Some dude on the shore asks the question that I'm told angling, anglers hate the most. Did you catch anything? <laughs> they fished all night, and you always fish at night to get the fish to the market in the morning. But if you were getting desperate, what you do is put a spotter on the shore 100 yards out and look for black moving spots of schools of fish. And certainly this one hollers out, hey, cast your nets on the right side. And sure enough, they have such a large catch. It says 153 large fish. That's not an epic fail. And they have trouble bringing it in. But when all this is happening, John thinks, wait a minute. This has happened before. Back in Luke 5, when the ministry just started of Jesus and he was calling the fishermen, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, he did this exact same thing. John says, aha. And Peter starts running to Jesus. Jesus has some small fish on the barbie. It's actually, this is important, a charcoal fire. Fish cooking they have this meal, and then we read this. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Church history tells us that Peter was crucified as a martyr. But in honor of his Savior, he was crucified upside down. Who is God when we sin? He's the one who pursues us with empathy and gentleness. To do what? Well, to help us be restored and our lives redeemed. I want to just briefly step into this for a moment to see Jesus at work here in the work of restoring relationship. After Peter had sinned, what does he do? He does three things. First, he makes sure that Peter understands what he's done. Isn't it interesting, right, this restoration process? What does Peter do? Well, he re, or, uh, Jesus, he reenacts almost the entire situation. It's a charcoal fire. If you read John 18, Peter was warming himself when the servant girl asked him if he knew Jesus. Guess what kind of fire? 
charcoal fire. Same smell, same sight. Why does Jesus make Peter walk through the question three times? To harness the three denials. Why does Jesus call Peter Simon, son of John? Well, to take him back to that Matthew 16 moment when you, I said you were going to be a rock, some rock. Everything about this scenario is Jesus like a heart surgeon cutting him open and saying, look, you need to see this. You need to name what you've done. You need to acknowledge what you've done. Look, there is no repentance until the blame is finished. There is no repentance until you acknowledge that you have sinned against me. It starts there, folks. Who is Jesus when we sin? He's the God who wants to restore us, and the beginning of restoration is an acknowledgement of what we've done. We have sinned against God. From there, I like a surgeon, if I could stay with the metaphor, you've got to go inside. If the heart's opened up, here's what happened. You go inside, let's find the problem. And it isn't an interesting what Jesus identifies as the problem. The problem is not, Jesus doesn't say to Peter, well, you can't, don't you ever chicken out again. Don't you ever be so prideful that you won't be associated with me. He doesn't, where's the problem? What's the question? Do you love me more than these? These, I don't know, fish, disciples, yeah, all of it, anything, everything. Do you love me more than these? Augustine, the great fourth century church father, said that all sin comes and stems from a disordered love. God said, you will love me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. When we don't, it is sin. All sin is denying Jesus. All sin is pushing him off the, the highest place of our life and putting something else there. All sin is a failure to love God above all. Peter, that's the problem here. I'm cutting you open. You need to see this. And what you see is that you failed to love me in that moment above everything else. And then the third, what does the heart surgeon do? Cuts him open identifies the problem, and then he takes it out. And how does he take it out? Look at verse 17. What takes out this kind of grief over sin? Verse 17, when the third time it says Peter was hurt. That word hurt is the strongest emotional word in the Greek language for mourning. Peter is mourning his sin. The way that we come back to God after we've sinned, he's already pursuing us and he wants this to happen and he's orchestrating everything to make it happen. But the way we get back in fellowship with him is to mourn our sin, to feel it deeply what we've done. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives a very enlightening comment about this language. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. All right, there's our two 
ways of feeling badly for what happens to us when we make bad decisions. There's either godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is this idea that, boy, I really messed my life up and that makes me sad. Godly sorrow is, oh my goodness, I've sinned against the one I love most. One grieves the Savior, one grieves the circumstances. Do you know where I see this? I'm going to be kind of transparent here for a moment. In like 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've seen this a hundred times this way. And I'm not being gender like bullying here. I'm just saying this is usually the way it happens. A wife will come in. She'll make an appointment, sit down, and she'll proceed to tell me, my marriage is in a really hard place. I don't think I can take it anymore. I'm thinking of doing this or that or separating or I need to make a change. And everything she puts out on the table. Well, what usually happens is a day or two later, the husband makes an appointment to come see me. And the husband sits down and he says, I have really screwed up my marriage. I know that I've hurt her. And I know that she's thinking of making some changes. Now listen to me, at this moment, there are two kinds of husbands in the world. The one husband, it begins to really settle in him that he has damaged his wife. He has hurt her heart and he is so devastated by that. He can't get over that, that he has hurt his wife. And there is the beginning of godly sorrow because what he is grieving is the hurt that he's caused his wife. The other kind of husband, he's sitting there and he says, she is getting ready to make some changes and my life is going to get really hard. One is grieving his wife's hurt. One is grieving his wife's leaving. One is grieving that he has deeply deeply impacted his relationship with wife and his God. And the other is saying, man, I'm really sad. My life's going to be messed up if she makes these decisions. One is godly sorrow. One is worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is the expulsive power that leads to heart change. Worldly sorrow will last only as long as the circumstances are hard. Jesus, when we sin, pursues us to restore. And he says, you need to name the sin. You need to feel it deeply that you didn't love me like you should have. And then feeling that sorrow, we move on from here. Because that's exactly what happens next. Not only do we, in pursuit, feel Jesus restoring us, but he redeems those worst hard parts of our life. Look at what happens next. All those questions about feed my sheep, tend my flock, all those three times he says it in different ways because he really wants Peter to hear it. Peter, your life's not over here. Yeah, you made an epic fail and you didn't love me in that moment and it hurts. But guess what? Feed my sheep. Tend my flock. Peter, we move on from here. Get in the game. Fishermen, what the heck are you thinking? No one can make a living from fishing. Be a pastor. 
We move on. Folks, isn't this the, the like plentitude of the gospel? This is what makes Christianity different. I mean, here's a guy who made like the worst mistake of his life. And Jesus comes to him and says, let's get this figured out between us. We're good to go now. Guess what? You're going to be top three in leading a movement that will take over the Roman Empire in 300 years and now totally change the world. It's you, Peter. It's you, you big failure. It's you. Feed my sheep. Wow. That is the gospel. That's Christianity right there. We often think that leadership in a church or leadership in our lives should be, you know, people who have like great skill sets and charisma and can, you know, manage this and do that. Christianity has such a different take on leadership. Here's what happened. Peter, one of the inner three who spent three years with Jesus, arguably knew him the best, had an epic failure, like epic failure. But as a result of that failure, God is going to make him like top three. First 15 chapters of the book of Acts are about Peter. Why? Because he knew deep repentance. And because he knew deep repentance, he was now equipped to be a leader in the church. We often think leadership is about getting higher and higher and higher. Leadership with a cross the way Jesus leads is about getting lower and lower and lower. Amen. So I have three questions for you. These are the things, even now, give a little bit of time to think about it, but maybe these will resonate with you through the coming week. Three questions. First question. When people in your life fail, and maybe fail you. And I'm talking about your children, your spouse, friends. When people in your life fail and even fail you, do you interact with them with empathy and gently? Question two, some of you here in this room, you've had a fail. Maybe it's been like not a sin thing, but a, a suffering thing where you've had a health journey or a relationship failure or things that just put you on the sideline for a bit. My question for any of us suffering that way is this. Three times Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my flock. Some of you know that you've been on the sideline long enough and Jesus is telling you right now, you need to get back into the game. You need to get back into the game. Prayer volunteering for VBS. It's a great start. I mean, all kinds of things to do here to feed my sheep. Some of you, 
Yeah, you've had a fail. You've needed to work that out with the Lord, but it's time for you to get back. Last question. Some of you may be watching online. You've been exploring what Christianity is. You're like asking all these questions and you just want to know like, what can I give rest to my heart? And you've tried, man. You have tried work and you've tried like apocalyptic romance and sex. You've tried money. You've tried all different kinds of ways to like get some settlement in here and to, to slow like the hunger down. And this morning, Jesus He's prepared a meal for you by the beach, and he wants to ask you, do you love me more than these? Would you love me more than these? Would you follow me? And following him, a weary and burdened heart finds rest. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to pray these words into our congregation so that our congregation can take these to our community and to our world, that we would be the kind of people who, having received such grace for our own failures and sins, that when people we encounter in our lives touch our wells of grace, that we'd pour out a lot of it on them. Yes, Lord, there's a place for confession. There's a place for repentance. Jesus is moving us always toward those things. But Lord, it begins not with judgment and not with anger and not with condemnation. It begins with empathy and gentleness and grace. You've called us to that. May we be a church who lives it. And all of us say together, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's worship the Lord.